I've had families come to the Smart Center where mom, dad, and child walk in even now with a mask. And the parents are like, we're very nervous. We're worried about illnesses. So what is that child hearing every day from their parents in terms of fears and worries? Welcome back to another episode of the Unspoken Words podcast hosted by Dr. Alicia Chapon-Blum and the Smart Center. I'm Brandon, Unspoken Words podcast producer. This episode features our first Ask Dr. E episode of 2024. In this episode, Dr. E answers five listener questions ranging from what training and qualifications you need to begin treating individuals with SM, to ways to get your seven-year-old son to talk in school, to how to get past the verbal intermediary stage, and more. Before we get started, remember you can ask Dr. E questions of your own. Please head to selectivemutismcensor.org forward slash ask e that's a-s-k dash d-r dash e and we answer your questions on podcast episodes blog posts and on social media so without further ado here's the latest episode of the unspoken words podcast hey dr e hey brandon how are you today good you ready to do some more ask dr e's this year i am so super excited to do ask dr e's this is my way of listening to our listeners who have lots and lots of questions and my way of sharing my knowledge. So yes, let's get going. All right. Well, let's get right into it. Some great questions. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts. First question is, I've been recently uh, turned on as an avid listener of, the, of, your, of your podcast. I wanted to reach out and say that I really appreciate all your information you share. I've been interested in learning more about SM recently. I was wondering, what kind of training and qualifications must someone like me have in order to, to begin treating children with SM? Great question. We get asked this often. In order for somebody to treat selective mutism, they need to be a licensed professional. This would be a licensed mental health professional, such as marriage and family therapist, social worker, licensed professional counselor, at the minimum, a master's degree or a individual that continues on and gets their doctorate, a PsyD or a PhD, a speech and language pathologist, and a physician, a medical doctor or an osteopathic physician. Those are the individuals that can really do the diagnosis, assessment, and treatment. Because selective mutism is considered an anxiety disorder, it's said that speech and language pathologists don't do the official diagnosis, so the mental health professionals, the physicians do the actual diagnosis, but speech and language pathologists are wonderful, wonderful professionals to do assessments and do treatment. In fact, we have done research-based assessments on children with selective mutism because they don't speak. So using a speech pathologist to assess their speech and language skills is really critical, especially since 30 to 40% of kids with SM can have an underlying speech and language pathologist. I, I do want to say that there are a lot of other professionals. Teachers can help and assist. It, it's pretty much endless of who can help and assist. It's, it's whether the, the treatment aspect is what you're looking for. I do encourage you to go to selectivemutismcenter.org or the Smart Center in the resource section for webinars, articles, handouts, charts, etc. We have a wonderful webinar called What is Selective Mutism? Gives you an 
overview of what selective mutism is. As my listeners and clients I've worked with and so many know that I see SM as a social communication anxiety disorder rather than kids that or teens that don't speak is really important. So getting a really good understanding of what this is is important. Going to the Selective Mutism Association or SelectiveMutism.org, that is the organization, the nonprofit organization that I founded many years ago that's mission is to educate, promote awareness, and there's tons and tons of information um, on that website. Also, we have a lot of um, individuals that may not be licensed professionals, but want to come and help and learn more. I encourage um, that individual to reach out to us at info at selectivemutismcenter.org um, because there's opportunities to volunteer at Communicamp. It's the three plus day intensive group treatment and parent training program that we do at least seven to eight times per year. It's a wonderful opportunity to be immersed in this population. It's a great way to get your feet wet. And if you are in the educational field or any sort of mental health field, if you're in school and you're interested, there's definitely roles for you in terms of actually working with the kids. So if I'm someone who wants to help out at Communicamp, do I need any qualifications to be a counselor? Yes, definitely. You need to be at least in a graduate program for mental health or speech and language or occupational therapy in an area of, um, you know, helping these individuals for that sort of background. We do do the training to uh, get you kind of ready, being more of a junior counselor or a helper in that case, not necessarily a counselor, because the counselors at Communicamp are clinical counselors that have more advanced degrees. But there are many that just come and volunteer. They volunteer with the parents, they assist, and yeah. so forth. So you Probably definitely need to have, yes, you definitely need to have clearances to work with the kids as well. And that's something that we can help you with. Okay. So in terms of treating SM, if I start right now, with zero qualifications or, or zero uh, experience in SM treatment? You how long would it a, take? How long it, would it, it take? take? It depends on your undergraduate background, frankly. Like if you have no classes in any sort of mental health psychology, it, it, it really depends on the avenue you want to go. So I don't have that answer. I would say it's a minimum of two to three years of at least getting a master's degree and background to be able to actually treat. Right. But again, there's other roles that someone can do to assist that doesn't necessarily mean they're the primary treatment professional. Okay. They could be more on an intern level or an associate level to assist a treatment professional in in the office or in other settings, in the school and so forth. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, let's move on to the second question. My granddaughter, who is seven in second grade, has SM and does not verbally speak at school. Any suggestions? I know yeah, there's that's a, lot a, of, loaded... a lot of ways you can go with that. Yeah, I would say that in order to keep this somewhat short, <laughs> that's a loaded question. If you went to your doctor and said, I have a fever, your doctor wouldn't say, do one, two, and three, see you later, goodbye. They would say, wait, why do you have a fever? So for me, when I hear someone isn't speaking in school, my mind opens up to, well, why are they not speaking in school? 
Do they have any of the whys of SM? And we have podcasts that go over the whys, the common whys of SM. And what are their baseline stages of social communication based on the social communication bridge with peers, with teachers in small groups, large groups, and so forth. So knowing the whys and knowing their baseline stages gives us an avenue to begin the the treatment process or developing school-based accommodations and interventions and do they need more formal 504 or IEP and so forth. So that's a very loaded question. I don't know why your granddaughter is not speaking in school. I would say the most typical presentation is a more timid, sensory sensitive individual that is somewhat overwhelmed and shuts down and that behavior becomes more learned and conditioned. And then implementing the comfort precedes communication and progress doesn't happen in a group. Therefore, we need to build comfort connection and do interventions or implement strategies away from the group through the buddy process, get togethers outside of school, small groups in the room, small groups out of the room, a a lot of parent education, a lot of teacher education. So as you can hear, Brandon, I don't have one way to get your kid to speak in school. I have to understand them. At the Smart Center, we do something called the Selective Mutism Evaluation. It's about a 90-minute interview. We assess various forms that you submit from the school and the parents, and we evaluate the child in terms of their what are they screening for in terms of virtually? Yeah. Well, so that's what I wanted to say is that we screen for the factors into the development of selective mutism and why it also may be continuing. We call that the whys. And we also assess for their baseline stages of social communication. The selective mutism evaluation is done in states that we are licensed and we're licensed in multiple, multiple states. An individual can figure that out by going to selectedmutismcenter.org and seeing the states that we have telehealth or, of course, in person. For states that we are not licensed, we do something called the Selected Mutism Interview, which is more of an interview to kind of get an understanding from a not from a non-diagnose. We can't diagnose in those states, but we can tell you that based on what you're presenting to us, this is what it seems We can't work with the children in states we're not licensed. We work more with the parents, but in states Mm -hmm. we're licensed, we can do the full evaluation. And then a full written report is provided to those families and they can share that with the school. And that's what's needed for treatment, whether it's group treatment, communicamp or individual treatment through intensives and so forth, jump starts. And so in other words, we need to understand the individual. So when I get this question of, why is my granddaughter not talking? They need some sort of an evaluation by a licensed professional who can assess the factors into why somebody may not be speaking and then what are their baseline stages of social communication. All right. Awesome. So let's move on to question number three. How do you transition from a verbal intermediary to the next step? My daughter will use me to answer another adult's question when we are out in the community, but she won't directly answer the adult. How do you make that transition? What's the next step on getting her to speak directly to them? Great question. This is a detailed question. And so I want the family to kind of read one of the resources called the transitional stage of communication, the missing link for an overview of the missing link. I'd like this family to look at the social communication bridge and realize 
the different stages of social communication, zero being non-communicative, stage one being non-verbal, stage two being verbal intermediary sounds, augmentative devices, the transitional stage, or stage three being verbal, quiet one or two words, to elaborative, initiative, and expressive. So understanding that visual. For most children, we will use a bridge. We will draw the child pointing, we'll draw the child telling their parent, we'll draw the child using words. For far majority, as we train parents to use a forced choice question and use visuals, so they hear the choice as the last option is correct, and they see the visual. So let's give the example of giving an order. The child has their visual menu, so that's the visual, and they the parent may ask a choice. So rather than saying to the waiter, when the waiter says, what do you want? So rather than the parent answering for the child or for the parents to say, tell that person, the child, the parents will ask, do you want nuggets or pizza? The right answer being pizza, the child sees it. No answer, nuggets or pizza, tell me, and they have to lean in. Some children, just by the use of, do you want nuggets or pizza, will slowly, naturally turn to their parent and say pizza. So that is the common, and that's the way that most children do that, and they will tell the parent. As the parent continues to do that over and over and over, the child gets louder and louder to the point where the child is heard. Once the child is heard, then the child gets verbal points or checks off the verbal stage on that bridge. For children that don't, and they continuously turn to their parents, pull them in, we can break up the transitional stage into different like stages. So it's fist length, half an arm, full arm. They might be able to use different, like a measuring uh, kind of tape, or they will use popsicle sticks if they're young. But again, kids may use fist length, half an arm, full arm, and they check off how far. And we use that in treatment and the child sees how far. Now these have to be contrived opportunities. So if it's going to a restaurant, doing a scavenger hunt or looking for things in a store, if they're meeting with an aunt or an uncle or and they're playing these question answer games, for example, using a parent as an intermediary where the child sees where they are on that bridge as working towards younger children, the games to cross the bridge and the child or for older kids, the goal and working to get their voice louder. Typically nine times out of 10, as parents change their way of questioning, the child naturally gets desensitized picking quieter, smaller, or avoiding loud, large, lots of people environments and practicing the games and the goals in very predictable kind of structured ways, the child starts to get used to doing that and their voice gets louder. If the parent asks the choice question and the child answers and they get loud enough, but the parents aren't sure if the other person heard, the parents want to use the did you get that goal of turning to the waiter? Did you get that? If the waiter goes, yep, I got it. The child gets verbal points. If that aunt or an uncle, the same thing it could be playing games that the question answer game and the parents aren't sure if that aunt or uncle heard the parent goes, did you get that? And the, the aunt or uncle goes, no, I didn't. The parent repeats it. So for the far majority, playing the game or doing the goal where the child is aware of it will help with the consistency. And I think that's what I see. No, I don't think. I know. This is what I see is lacking in most treatments. So when we see families at the SMART Center, what we see is that they don't have concrete goals. They don't have concrete games. Parents don't have concrete parent goals. So what happens is it's hit or miss. And so these children don't make the steady, consistent 
progress. That's Mm -hmm. why game charts, goal charts, parent education, their own goal charts to kind of know what they're working on to help with that progression. And the child's awareness is very important. So again, you can hear me talking about lots of different ways to progress across the social communication bridge without relying on the intermediary. And often it's just the child's voice gets louder and we teach others to repeat with that eye contact. So even if the child is very quiet and the child answers, we train teachers, aunts and uncles and so forth to repeat with that eye contact. So if you see what I mean? So let's say they're working with their aunt or an uncle and give your, you know, what's your favorite? Do you like questions or whatever questions they're using? We train the parents to educate others on repeating with that eye contact. So the child realizes, oh, they heard me and it's no big deal rather than, oh, you talked, oh, you talked and making a big deal out of it. So it's how we train others to respond as the child is making that progress. So there's lots of ways to utilize the verbal intermediary and transition to direct speech to others. It's based on that child's unique needs. And I just shared some common ways that need to be tweaked, obviously, for each mm-hmm. child. And we tweak the goals as the child is moving along. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like this is a, a key step in treatment is get, going from verbal intermediary to being able to speak directly to an adult Not or somebody else. Yeah, not necessarily. Younger children, just by the way parents ask a question, just by the way teachers ask a question, can progress that child into verbal. Mm. Because if you ask an open-ended, thought-provoking question, why do you want that? Tell me what the book was about. Many kids aren't going to answer this question. But if we train others, parents, teachers, et cetera, et cetera, to ask questions a certain way, and we have a document called About My Child, where we have really common ways that others should question, engage the child through choice questions, through direct questions, through write and read, through visuals, the child will make the progress, but it's how you integrate it. Like that unique recipe for that child of where you emphasize various strategies and not. And that's where understanding the child is really important because there's no one size fits all treatment there's at all. So I really think it's really important that if a parent is concerned that a child has selective mutism, that they get an evaluation from a licensed professional who understands SM. Don't mess around. Go to a licensed professional that gets it, that can really understand your child to develop a step-by-step treatment plan. And verbal intermediary is one step. And not to add, you know, a whole nother Pandora's box here of talking about, but there's many teens, for example, that don't use an intermediary a lot because they can speak. It's how you question when you question, where you question, and so forth. So the verbal intermediary is used as a common way to bring them into social communication, children in different settings, but it's not used for every child. It's really based on that child's unique needs and if that is a proper strategy. Awesome. Let's move on to the next question. You don't specifically mention augmentative and alternative communication devices or apps when talking about augmented devices as a transition tool. Is there a reason why these tools aren't encouraged? Great question. It's not that I don't encourage the use of these devices. I use these devices when needed for school-based accommodations and interventions. For example, when a child needs to present an oral report and they can't, 
or they need to um, read for their teacher and they're not able to do it in the school or they need to do it in a separate room. And so using augmentative devices, even in the classroom, can be a way to allow the child the accommodations needed to participate and to be assessed. So it's a very specific type of use, and I'm not opposed to it. I also use it in a, a step in the treatment within the community, in the real world, with friends, with relatives, and even just in a way for teachers and so forth, and more of a step in the process. It's not ever been a tool that helps them get from nonverbal to verbal right away. It's a step in the process. So for some of the kids, especially younger kids, they will tape funny jokes or riddles, or they'll give their order through taping what they want and playing it or a talking photo album or just jokes, riddles, whatever, questions, answers as a step in the process because they're not comfortable using their words. This is not for everyone. Let me repeat, this is not for everyone. There are many children and teens that are not comfortable using their voice through augmentative devices or an AAC device. They're just not. And if you try to trick them, tape their voice and play it, or try to force them to tape their voice and play it, what ends up happening is you actually cause an avoidance, more anxiety, and it creates a lack of trust. And it actually pushes that individual further and further away from being able to cross the bridge into speech because they've lost trust. They're not comfortable with their voice being taped. The far majority of individuals I treat are not comfortable with their voice being taped. Um, so it's a step in the process for the right child or teen, either through the use of school-based accommodations and interventions or it's through games and goals as a first step in the transitional. So some kids, as they are giving their order, will tape and play. The next might be tell their parent. We may start with full sentences, then wean down, and then they use their voice. There's various ways to use augmentative devices. So it's not that I'm not encouraging it. It's not for everyone. And so I want to be clear that mm -hmm. it's just not. And so therefore, we need to know which child or teen we're working with that feels comfortable with that. There are lots of yeah. simple ways through the use of phones and devices, through voice memos, mm. text to speech that some kids are very welcoming to do. Um, one of my, the very favorite things that kids use, younger kids, is the talking photo album. So they may show their aunts, their uncles, friends, and they may play um, hide and seek through the use of walkie talkies just to get their voice being heard. But again, it's used with the specific individual in a way that works with that individual. So there's not like a global way to use it. It's based on the child's unique needs and their willingness to use it, frankly. You can't trick them into this. Yeah. For a layman like me, it just seems like AAC devices aren't like a natural part of treatment. It seems like it's not necessarily addressing the issue. Well, the ultimate goal is because individuals with selective mutism or social communication anxiety disorder have the ability to speak. Now, they may not, they may have underlying challenges such as speech and language, so we can help them reach their capacity in speech. 
right? But they have the ability to speak as they wouldn't have this diagnosis. So you don't want to rely on this as an end all and be all as the cure all for mm -hmm. overcoming this. It's used yeah. in a step in the process. And I will say that in speech and language disorders and so forth, and even a way to accommodate these kids, it's very common within school settings to use augmentative devices. So it's very common. So for a layman that doesn't know that, it might seem strange or different, mm. but it's very common to use in individuals on the autism spectrum for kids with uh, speech and language issues as a way to accommodate their difficulty. And right. it's also a step in the treatment process through games and goals as they're unlearning their condition mutism and they're progressing into speech. That's why I use it as a transitional tool. So you mentioned something interesting. An AAC can be just a, a voice memo on your phone. Yeah. You or, tape a uh, message and you play video. It. Yeah. yeah. Are there other, are there more like formal versions of that? Like, is there, where do you get something? Where do you get an AAC? So device? an AAC can be an actual device that you use. It's actually an augmentative, uh, you know, an AAC device. It's actually a device, a hard device. There's also apps that you can download from the app store. Apple has their mm. own text-to-speech, Google. There's fun um, text-to-speech or just voice taping and playing through games and activities and different apps. They change every day um, in so the app store at, for younger children. So just help me understand the, use, the uh, application of an AAC device. So if I'm at a restaurant and I have SM, and a server comes over and asks us to take, asks us what we want to eat. Does, do I go on my phone and like in the corner of the table and like say it really softly and then play it and then play it? Or do I, is, is it something that's pre-recorded because you already know what you're going to get on your way to the restaurant? Right. So the majority of kids that use this will have it pre-recorded. In fact, it could be a different voice memo or an app. It could be like I seen something called a talking like photo album, for example. So you put the visual of the type of food that they like and they press the button. So the waiter may say, what would you mm. like to drink? And they push and it says Sprite. Or they- it's what like a would keyboard you like? of, yeah, of so sound. A, so remember I talk about visuals a lot, the repetitive use of visuals over and over, the same things over and over. That helps minimize the need to think and process. So for most interactions, whether it's giving your order, looking for something in a store, whether you're doing interviews, polls, surveys, you're interacting with your aunts, your uncles, even teachers in small groups and so forth, a lot of things, a lot of question answers can be recorded. What's your favorites? Do you like as a step in the process? But for children that aren't comfortable with that, you don't use it because all it's going to do is shut them down. And you can't superimpose somebody else's voice over theirs and then, hey, look, look what we did. You're talking to your teacher. The kids know they're not talking to their teachers, so they have to be willing yeah. to do it. And for young kids, it can be fun and goofy and silly and funny noises that they start with. Some of the younger kids start with like, or, or, mm. or animal sounds as a way to get their voice out through taping it. The far majority don't use augmentative devices. They just don't. That's why I don't talk about it that much because they have a voice. And by using the verbal intermediary, using sounds to words, that's all that's needed. And so we desensitize them through that means of going across the transitional stage and they become verbal. That's why I don't talk about it a lot.
So I'd say by far the far majority use it for school-based accommodations interventions and a step in the process to transition to verbal that's used for a very short period of time. That's it. Okay. AAC devices are actually really interesting. It's a really interesting topic. I want to move on to our last question. My five-year-old daughter with SM has become dependent on wearing her mask at school. And I believe this is exacerbating her SM, making it even harder for her to communicate. Now that the pandemic is less of a threat, so I want to gently work on us removing her mask at school, but not quite sure how to best go about this. Any thoughts? Yeah. So just so you know, there are a percentage of individuals that come to the smart center or even come to camp and they won't take their mask off. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's possibly this was just sent in last week. Um, they're yeah. still very dependent on their mask and it's done you for kind of hide re- behind a- it. Yeah, they hide behind it. It's more of an avoidance, a subconscious or a conscious avoidance. Um, it's also a protection. And because this child is five, think about it. Three years ago, they were two. So probably from two to three and a half, they were wearing masks. And based yeah. on how the family was in terms of interacting with others and even leaving the house, it's possible that they didn't interact with others. And when they did, they had to wear a mask. And sometimes parents are very anxious and they'll be like, put your mask on, put your mask on. Don't talk to that person. Don't go near that person. That's what we were going through during the pandemic. And some of these kids, very highly sensitive kids, and based on how this was handled within the home and out of the home, they're very dependent on their mask as a way to protect them because they're scared and they're not used to interacting. So what I would say is we need to come up with a place that they, the places that they don't use their, that they use their mask. And in this case, it sounds like it's primarily school and to have opportunities before, after school that the child begins to lower their mask and be without their mask. And sometimes it's starting in those places. And what we've had a lot of successes is helping that child. Now this child's only five, so it's a younger child but kind of charting it where they have their mask, they start to move it down, move it down, move it down till eventually it's just on their chin. And that helps them also changing up the mask. So they're not dependent on one mask. So that's kind of like new. And then they have the goal and they can even chart. I've been able to move it down below my nose and they get like prizes. And also just talking to this child by saying that we don't need the mask anymore. And let's talk about it. And actually being very empathetic, very understanding that they're doing it out of fear and also the routine of it. Many kids that have anxiety in general, changing up their routine can be very anxiety provoking. So they feel safe with a mask, especially if there's concern with germs. I've had families come to the Smart Center where mom, dad, and child walk in even now with a mask and the parents are like, we're very nervous. We're worried about illnesses. So what is that child hearing every day from their parents in terms of fears and worries? Are they nervous? And they're often very talking about this. So I'd want the parents to be very like kind of open and think about like, how are they presenting this to their child? And what is the child hearing in the background? Because if it's all about being nervous and afraid still of COVID still existing and flu, and they're projecting their own fears or worries, that's going to prevent this from moving forward. And the child will not take off their mask. But if the parents are open and very, you know, kind of transparent with the child and say that you can see that your classmates are not wearing a mask, it's safe out there. Yes, you can get a cold, but it's 
because most of this child's life, they don't know any different. This isn't a 12 year old where prior to three years ago, you know, the, the, or four years ago, sorry, this wasn't an issue, but this child's whole life, three, four years ago was, you know, cover up your face. Yeah. I think it's probably an issue. A lot of people are dealing with, with their, with their children who are that age, not even if they don't have SM, I feel like right. wearing a mask growing up a couple of years, those developmental years, everyone wearing a mask. It's definitely a yeah. unique challenge that they're going to have to deal with. Yeah. And, and setting up a goal chart or a game chart and where the child sees, yes, it's right under my nose and moving it down, checking it off and using mm. their feelings zero to three for a five-year-old when something's really scary, medium, scary, little bit, or zero, no scaries. So three mm-hmm. out of three is super and re and using their ability to understand their feelings and starting in a place that's the least kind of anxiety provoking in the school. Maybe it's after school, the parents just walk around and maybe the yeah. child can take their whole mask off. So that's the last step in the process. Or maybe the child needs to do it right under their nose. There's a lot of ways to help desensitize this child and remove the mask. It's really working with that individual. So if I'm a teacher and I have a student that's five, six, seven years old, who's wearing a mask in school, he's like the only kid or she's the only kid in the class wearing a mask. What do I bring it up to, to, to their parents? Like, how would you approach it from a teacher's perspective? Yeah, I think that talking to the parents, if you notice the child, I would think the parents would know because the child would probably verbalize that to their parents. So I would think if the school has concerns about it, I mean, to talk to the parents, but I would say that there are kids and families that are very comfortable with masks still. I mean, you walk around in society and you see whole families still wearing masks because COVID still exists, even though it may not be as severe. So there are lots of families that are walking around masks or maybe they had COVID. And so they're now wearing the mask in those days after COVID, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Or they were exposed to COVID. So it's not like this child is the only person walking around with a mask. So I don't want to like pull the mask as far as, you know, just pulling it. But it sounds like this family, there is no reason for this child to be wearing a mask other than their kind of subconscious or conscious avoidance and protection and fear and anxiety. And so I think for that particular family, it's working through it and talking with the child in an empathetic, compassionate way and creating a goal chart or game chart to help the child unlearn it in the ways that I described. Awesome. All right. Well, these were some great answers and I'm excited to put this episode out. If anyone has any questions on anything in the episode, we we encourage you guys to go on our website under, I believe it's resources and go to ask Dr. E and you can ask your own questions. Even if you had a question that we answered on this podcast and you have a follow-up question, please use that form. And we're excited to keep this segment going for you guys this year. And you, we will be we will be back with another episode of Ask Doctor E soon. Thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to share my knowledge. For more information, please go to selectivemutismcenter.org. If you have questions on anything covered in this podcast episode, we want to answer them. Please head to selectivemutismcenter.org forward slash ask. D-R-E. And we'll do our very best to answer them in upcoming podcast episodes, Smart Center newsletters, and on social media. Thank you.